to episode 29 of History Does You. Today we'll be covering Teddy Roosevelt and the Spanish-American War, and it's a very interesting episode. I think that the Spanish-American War in particular is really fascinating given sort of what was going on globally at the time and also featured a lot of interesting characters, especially Teddy Roosevelt, who is, you know, one of those very larger than life type of characters that did all these things beyond being president. So I think molding all these different things makes it into a really unique story and really unique time in American history, and especially a part of American history that I think is overlooked, especially as that period between sort of the Civil War and the First World War before the U.S. sort of really rose to true global power status. But as we'll cover in the interview, the Spanish-American War sort of fueled this idea of American exceptionalism and sort of fueled this idea of putting the, the United States had this righteous place in the global order. And in the midst of all of this, you had this great power competition going on in Europe between Great Britain, Germany, in particular Russia, France, these different countries that had vast colonies overseas. And so the road leading into the First World War was well underway at that time. And at the same time, the United States was sort of trying to find itself in sort of this world, in this sort of great power competition, especially as the population grew exponentially, the American economy is growing exponentially, it had vast resources, it had all these different things. And it's sort of, again, in the backdrop of the Spanish-American War, you had all these different things going on. So again, I think it's kind of a period in a war in particular that is overlooked in the grand scheme of things, but I think plays a very critical role at sort of the beginning of the 20th century, which is arguably the most consequential period in history, in my opinion. So the United States was sort of, you know, there's always this argument between isolation and being involved. And I think you saw those conflicting visions really clash in this period of time. Again, as we'll cover in the interview, you had the Spanish-American War, and then eventually that leads to the acquisition of Cuba, Puerto Rico, and the Philippines. In the Philippines in particular, a very bloody guerrilla war was waged. So, and that sort of fueled this isolationist policy or this isolationist tendency that sort of gets examined very frequently in American history. But at the same time, you had this intervention in Cuba, which was undergoing a revolution against the Spanish, against Spain at the time. So I think it was this perfect storm of factors, both in the United States and externally, that sort of, you know, fueled the beginning of the 20th century. So I hope you enjoyed the interview. I really, again, Teddy Roosevelt, I think, is just one of those fascinating, larger-than-life characters. And especially in the backdrop of the Spanish-American War, it's, you know, it's a fascinating story, and I hope you enjoy it. On today's episode, we welcome on Clay Risen. He's the senior political editor at the New York Times. He has written widely about spirits for newspapers and magazines, including the New York Times, Forbes, The Atlantic, and The Washington Post. Some of his work includes the spirits bestseller, American Whiskey, Bourbon and Rye, a guide to the nation's favorite spirit. He's also the author of several popular American histories, including A Nation on Fire, America in the Wake of the King Assassination, The Bill of the Century, The Epic Battle for the Civil Rights Act, and The Crowded Hour, Teddy Roosevelt, The Rough Riders, and The Dawn in the American Century, which was a New York Times notable book of 2019. So welcome on. Thanks for having me. And to begin, what is your favorite subject of history to research and talk about? Why is it your favorite? And how did you become interested in Teddy Roosevelt and the Spanish-American War? 
good question. Political history is my sort of favorite. And my two previous books were really rooted in 1960s political history. And so to go and tackle a book about Teddy Roosevelt and the Rough Riders and the Spanish-American War was a little bit of a divergence for me. But I found it a really compelling story from the very beginning because it's both a fun action story of the Rough Riders, the Spanish-American War. There's a lot of adventure in it. And then, of course, there's Theodore Roosevelt is an incredibly compelling character. But also, this is all wrapped up in a time in American history when I think we often sort of overlook this period, this sort of turn of the last century when America was becoming a world power and trying to figure out what it meant to be a world power and where its place was in the world. And so I thought through various levels of this narrative, I could say something about that. And what are some of the challenges that you have encountered while researching history or writing about different subjects? The challenge with something like researching this book is a little different from researching a book about the 60s. In the 60s, you still have, or you already have, a lot of well-conserved archives, a lot of material, a lot of multimedia. You know, TV was around and a lot of radio and photography. And so there are lots of different sources. When you go back even 60 years before that, and you're talking about the turn of the century, there's a lot less. There's a lot less paperwork from a sort of bureaucratic political point of view. Journalism is not as reliable. There were some very good journalists, but there's also a lot of, think of this as the era of the yellow press. And so there's a lot of stuff that passed as legitimate that was based on rumors or sort of made up stories. So you have to be very careful about that. And then just generally people didn't preserve things. We didn't have as extensive kind of an, as an archival industry, I guess you'd call it. So a lot of folks, you could imagine if something like the Rough Rider story happened in the 1960s or just later and because they were so prominent, you probably would have had someone collecting material and stocking it away. Fortunately, there was one source that did that. There was a Rough Riders collection at the Las Vegas, New Mexico, not Nevada, but the Las Vegas, New Mexico Public Library. That's about an hour east of Santa Fe. And they, a long time ago, when Rough Riders were still around and they were doing their reunions actually in Las Vegas, an enterprising archivist, librarian, just started collecting material from them and getting them to send him materials, letters, any kind of memoirs, things. So there's a lot of stuff there that was very useful. But yeah, it was a real hit or miss sort of operation. And to get into, you know, Teddy Roosevelt and the Spanish-American War, which you covered in your book and we'll be talking about today. The beginning, it seemed that Teddy Roosevelt was a man of many interests. Can you briefly describe what some of those interests were? Yeah, you know, Theodore Roosevelt is one of the reasons he's so fascinating is that he did so much in his life. And, you know, if he had only been president with the record that he had, he would be well remembered. But he was also, and before he became president, he was known as a historian. He was known as a front, an advocate of the frontier, as we call it, of conservation. He was, had been a rancher. He was a politician. He had served in the New York State Assembly. He was someone who wrote in the popular press a lot about these questions, about where is America headed? And he was part of what was known at the time and what today is known as sort of the jingoists, sort of imperialism, but with their own spin on it. Different jingoists had slightly different preoccupations, but he was definitely, and one of the through line was that they advocated very aggressively for an expansive American presence in the world. So Roosevelt was also well known as an advocate for that. And, and then right before he joined the Rough Riders, he was the assistant secretary of the Navy. So he also played an important role in modernizing the Navy, getting it kind of ready for not only the Spanish-American War, but also to enter into the century as an arm of this kind of newfound American power. 
And in the lead up to the war, what was Teddy Roosevelt doing and what was he sort of advocating for? Well, Roosevelt was one of the people who thought that we should go to war with Spain. And at the time, the political leadership was not particularly eager to go to war. One of the things that's sort of an interesting dynamic in this story is that you have an older generation, many of whom were Civil War veterans. Every, gen every president from General Grant up until McKinley had served in the Civil War, and they were scarred by it and marked by it. And really, you know, different men had different takes, but they were all pacifists, largely, and isolationists for the most part, and really averse to anything that would get us into another war. And that included war with Spain over Cuba. And Cuba was in revolt in a pretty gruesome, today we would probably call it a, a genocide, by Spain against the Cuban people. And yet there was a younger generation, led by Roosevelt, among others, who saw things differently and not only wanted to go to war with Spain over Cuba, but also saw that as an opportunity simply to go to war and to let the United States prove itself, to kind of let a younger generation prove itself. There was a whole basket of reasons why younger people wanted to go off to war. And Roosevelt was kind of the standard bearer for this cohort. And how did Roosevelt go about advocating for, you know, expanding the U.S. military both by land and sea, especially as, you know, the U.S. economy grew and U.S. influence was growing kind of exponentially? Yeah, so he wrote extensively. Roosevelt was one of the most widely, probably the most widely published president we've ever had in terms of just the number of books and the number of magazine articles. So he was constantly out there at a time when that was the main medium for debate. We didn't have TV, we didn't have radio. People would hear public speakers, but otherwise they would read about things. And so Roosevelt was an expert at kind of getting, you know, it's sort of popular journalism, popular opinion journalism. So he was very good at sort of getting his voice out there. He would do it the same way that people do it today. It would be in a book review or it would be in an essay in one of the popular magazines or he would do an interview for a newspaper. And, you know, he was also a just very active speaker. So he would take advantage of any opportunities he had to speak. And as he grew older, and especially as he took on the role of Assistant Secretary of the Navy, people were very interested in hearing what he had to say. So there was a famous speech that he gave at the Naval War College in Newport, Rhode Island. And it was a very aggressive speech. It was very, you know, it's sort of aggressive foreign policy speech. And it was reprinted everywhere. So that if you lived in California, if you lived in Texas, you probably at least heard that Roosevelt had given this speech. And so he knew how to work these things. And he was very good at working journalists. He was very good at sort of bringing people over to his side as people who might write about him or talk about him in the future. And to cover some of the events leading up to the Spanish-American War, did the United States take a more of an interest in expanding its influence, especially in the Western Hemisphere? Yeah, no, of course. I mean, a large part of what was driving Roosevelt was an interest in the Western Hemisphere as kind of an American protectorate. This was his version of imperialism, I think we'd call it, although he always resisted the idea that he was an imperialist. He certainly walked the walk. And you saw this when he later became president and he issued the Roosevelt Corollary, which was not only, you know, it's sort of a correlator to the Monroe Doctrine, which said that the U.S. would oppose any foreign intervention in the Western Hemisphere. The Roosevelt Corollary said the U.S. reserves the right to intervene in any part of the Western Hemisphere. And so that was very much part and parcel of his view about what the Western Hemisphere meant to the United States. So, and you saw it later with his push for the way that he went about getting access to the territory that would become the Panama Canal was, you know, essentially fomenting a rebellion by the Panamanians against the Colombians. And so he didn't really have any reserve or reservation about manipulating 
politics around the Western Hemisphere. And so his push for intervening in Cuba was also very much a part of that. And to follow up, obviously, Spain had been extensively involved with its colonies for many centuries. At that point in time, did Spain still have a keen interest and influence in its colonies, or was it sort of struggling to maintain its grip? Yeah, well, by the end of the 19th century, Spain only had two colonies in the Western Hemisphere. It had Puerto Rico and it had Cuba. But especially Cuba was incredibly important to Spain. This was the first real permanent settlement or site of settlement by the Spanish when they came to the Western Hemisphere. It was also home to Havana and was at the time of Cuban independence. It was one of the largest cities in the Spanish Empire. And it continued to be a great source of wealth and really a source of pride for the Spanish. And yet, I would argue, I think, that by the end of the 19th century, the Spanish were really looking for a way to get out of Cuba. It was a real drain on their economy. It was a cause of significant domestic and political disturbance at home. It was comparable to what Vietnam was for the United States later, or what Afghanistan was for the Soviet Union, just a place where they were pouring in soldiers, the soldiers were getting killed, they'd pour in more soldiers, and yet the Spanish couldn't really figure out a way to leave without complete political collapse at home. And so they were very much caught in a bind. And I think that one way to read the events of the Spanish-American War was simply that the United States needed to bloody Spain's nose in order for it to say, well, we, we call it quits. And that's essentially what happened with the American invasion of Cuba. And what were some of the factors that sort of led to the Cuban Revolution against Spain? Well, you know, you have this Spanish control over Cuba, and a lot of it was dictated in racial terms. So you had people who are descendants of Africans who were enslaved, and slavery was ended in the late 19th century, but it still left a real mark in terms of a caste system in Cuba. Then you had people who were descended from Spanish descendants and from some combination of African and native indigenous populations. And they sort of represented sort of a middle caste. And then you had people of pure Spanish descent who were a minority, but also really ruled the island. And some of them had never lived in Spain. Some of them were, again, this was an island that had been controlled by Spain for 400 years. And so you had generations that claimed Spanish blood and Spanish descent, but we had never been in Spain. But then there was also a lot of people who came from Spain. And so you had this caste dynamic that underlay a lot of exploitation by Spain of the Cuban economy. Cuba was very productive in terms of tobacco and sugar and mining, and it really propped up the Spanish economy. And so Spain exploited in a very brute way the Cuban natural resources. So, you know, a lot of this is a fairly typical colonial story where eventually the colonized rose up against Spain and set off on what was ultimately decades of conflict. There were really two revolutions or two wars in Cuba. One that was settled by promises from Spain to give Cuba a certain amount of independence and make it more of a protectorate. And yet when that didn't happen, and that combined with global depression in the early 1890s that dried up the economy and really just pushed a lot of people out of work. It was sort of a recipe for another uprising. So that's what happened, what started in 1895 and carried through until the American intervention in 1898. And throughout all of this, how big of a role did the American media play in sort of beating the drum to go to war and covering the Cuban Revolution? Yeah, so I think sometimes the story of the Spanish-American War is reduced to a media story. The war was the creation of the media. And I don't think that's 
quite accurate. There were a lot of newspapers, it's true, that were very much advocating for war, most of them, many of them irresponsibly, but there were many who were not advocating for war. And so it's tough to say that there was this one media story that was out there telling us that we should go to war. But there was definitely, depending on what newspaper you read, there was definitely a consistent line for at least a year or two before the war broke out. But I would flip it around a little and say that what was really happening was that the American public was increasingly eager to go to war through 1897 and into early 1898. And so while the newspapers sort of helped push that along, newspapers were also reflecting public attitudes. And it sometimes gets a little dangerous to say that America, you know, you get into this narrative where you say, well, William Randolph Hearst and Joseph Pulitzer, you know, essentially tricked the American people into going to war. And it's not really that. The American people wanted to go to war independent of what the media told them. And I think that's a very important historical point to take away because too often in our history, we blame bad wars on an elite, on politicians, on the media. And we sort of let that let us, the American people, off the hook. And this is an example where that's really not the story. And how much of an influence did, you know, the Monroe Doctrine have on policymakers and politicians and their decision to go to war? I mean, it's sort of in the background. I'm not sure that it was front and center as the doctrine that drove us to war. But look, there is no question that the Monroe Doctrine shaped the basic ideas of American foreign policy through the post-Civil War 19th century, you know, the attitude that America has the right to block other countries from intervening in the Western Hemisphere. You know, part of the difficulty was that there was always an understanding that new country, you know, countries couldn't come into the Western Hemisphere, but of course Spain already was in the Western Hemisphere and Britain already was in the Western Hemisphere. So there were exceptions, but it was more about kind of policing further intervention. And so I'd say there probably was some discussion about well, what is the limit of that when it comes to what Spain is doing in Cuba. Spain has always controlled Cuba. So where does the Monroe Doctrine stop? And that would be a point of debate with someone like Roosevelt, who said, well, it doesn't matter because they're killing Cubans. And very clearly, this is a violation of the Monroe Doctrine. And so we need to do something. I'd say the spirit of the Monroe Doctrine certainly animated a lot of that sentiment. And was the explosion of the USS Maine kind of the final straw that led the U.S. to intervene? Yeah. I mean, again, this is something that sometimes gets reduced a little bit or simplified in the historical narrative, because we often are told that the explosion of the Maine is what caused the Spanish-American War. But that's not really the case. It was a catalyst, for sure. But when the Maine exploded in Havana Harbor, the Maine had been sent there as sort of a demonstration of force. We were negotiating with the Spanish over Cuba, over whether they should leave or whether we could convince them, persuade them to leave Cuba. And the Maine was there as just sort of a show that we have tools at our disposal. When it exploded, there was actually a pretty widespread assumption that it was an accident. When you think about it, it doesn't really make sense that the Spanish would blow up the Maine in that context. Why would they do it? Now, what a lot of people said was, well, maybe it was caused by the Spanish. Maybe it was a water mine that was floating and exploded. You know, what ended up happening was simply that everybody in America was already on sort of either on the fence or sort of very nervous about Cuba. And so the explosion of the Maine, which was investigated by the Navy and was ruled, at least at first, the result of an external explosion. They didn't place any blame on Spain. They were very careful about that. 
you know, years later, it was sort of decided otherwise that it was actually an internal explosion. But anyway, the point is that, yeah, no, that certainly set the context. I mean, one of the things that was sort of the undercurrent for all of this was a lot of really deep-seated anti-Spanish sentiment in the United States, some of it driven by bigotry against Catholics. The Spanish were an arm of the Catholic Church, that the Spanish couldn't be trusted, or just Spanish generally. It was a pretty bigoted stereotype. And so part of what was going on here was simply the main exploded, the Spanish are in control of Havana. Obviously, this is somehow part of why we don't like Spain, almost a hysteria at that point. And so to say that there is any reasoning going on is probably to lend too much credence to the idea that there was a lot of rational debate. At this point, at the point where the main exploded, people were almost just looking for any excuse to go to war. So eventually all these events lead to a declaration of war. To start, what motivated Teddy Roosevelt to join the Rough Riders? So Roosevelt, at that point, he was 38 years old, and he was very eager to find, I'd say there were a couple of things. First of all, he was just looking for adventure, for some experience that could validate his feelings of his search for manhood, for manliness. This was both unique to him, but also, or he had a unique desire for these sorts of experiences, but it was also part of sort of Victorian American culture, this kind of younger generation that grew up on stories of the Civil War, but never really got to experience those sorts of things. And so Roosevelt was very much like his generation and the generation younger than him. Ultimately, a million men volunteered for the Spanish-American War. There was a real outpouring of desire to fight. And so Roosevelt was part of that. But Roosevelt also, there was a certain amount of opportunism. He certainly saw this as a way to build up his reputation. If he could go to war and come back a hero, then he would certainly be burnished in the American eye. I think there was also a certain amount of idealism on his part. He was, and he said, this was one thing that he said. So I don't think it's the whole story, but I do think there's something to it. He said, you know, look, I've spent years advocating for this war. And if I sit back and don't go to war, or even if I join the army, but I'm just a clerk somewhere, then I will have sent men to their deaths without risking my own. And that's something that I could never do. So, and I think there's something honest there. I don't think that's a whole story, but I think it's part of it. And yeah, so it's a complicated story, but I think he's a complicated man. And generally, what was the makeup of the Rough Riders? Were they from a specific area or did they come from all over the country? So they came from all over the country. It was formed as a volunteer regiment, so they took volunteers, but most of them were funneled through state and territorial governors. So New Mexico sent a contingent, and New Mexico got to choose the volunteers. Arizona sent a contingent, the Oklahoma Territory sent a contingent, but then there was also several hundred who were just drawn from volunteers from around the country. So you had, and Roosevelt actually took a heavy hand in picking those people. And so he was very eager to get college athletes or just professional athletes to get people who were sort of like him, a lot of college-educated, Ivy League-educated, outdoors types. He was an elitist in that regard. Not in every regard. In fact, in some ways, he was an anti-elitist. But in that regard, just the belief that places like Harvard and Yale created an ideal man. And so people who came out of those schools who played football and rode and boxed were for him, the best he could find. And so he picked those. Though it's telling that ultimately some of his best friends or the people that he came to admire the most through the experience in the Rough Riders were anything but that type. A lot of them were 
people that had never gone to college who had no experience really with formal education or maybe minimal with formal education, but were just very, very street smart or saddle smart, as you might call it, and were people that he just grew to admire very deeply. And besides the Rough Riders, who were some of the other soldiers that participated in the war? So the Rough Riders were about a thousand men in this regiment, but ultimately, as I said, a million men volunteered. Now, not all of those men were accepted, and very few of those men actually served in Cuba or Puerto Rico. About 16,000 of them, including a good chunk of the Rough Riders, were part of the first invasion force. And most of those men were made up of regular army troops. So at the time, and one of the reasons why we needed the Rough Riders in the first place, and why we needed volunteers, was that America had a very small army. By law, it couldn't be more than 26,000 soldiers, a couple of thousand officers, and they were spread all over the country. So when we went to war with Spain, we actually didn't really have an army to go to war with. And one of the reasons why it took so long for us to actually invade Cuba after declaring war was that we had to get everybody together. Now, ultimately, we did get a good number of soldiers together. So about two-thirds of the ones who were part of the initial invasion were regular army soldiers who had been rushed from all over the country to Florida to embark for Cuba. But, you know, about a third of them were volunteers drawn from all over the place. A lot of them were state militias. So there was a state militia from Michigan, there were state militias from a number of other states, and then there was the Rough Riders. And they were the only regiment that was a federal regiment. So they weren't funneled through states, they were simply picked, like, except in that states got to pick some element of the contingent. So New Mexico and Arizona and Oklahoma were allowed to pick a certain number. They had a quota. But it was federally run, so no one was ever commissioned through their states. And can you kind of just briefly describe some of the key battles during the invasion of Cuba, both at land and at sea? Yeah, so when we're speaking about the Cuban campaign in particular, there were two main land battles, really only one main land battle, and then a skirmish, and then kind of a side battle. So there was, the landing was unopposed. And then a few days later, there was the Battle of Las Guasimas, which was really, you know, one step up from just a skirmish. The Rough Riders were at the front of that, and about 10 Rough Riders were killed. There were a few other regiments involved. They also took casualties. The Spanish took heavier casualties, but that was just a morning fight last a couple of hours. The real main fight was the Battle of San Juan Heights, which took place on July 1st, 1898. It was also just a, a day-long battle, but with heavy casualties, hundreds of American casualties, hundreds of Spanish casualties. And there was also a side fight just in the north of that, which also involved pretty heavy casualties on both sides. And the Spanish at that point withdrew into Santiago. The whole point of this campaign was to capture Santiago, which was where the Spanish fleet was holed up. And so the idea was really to relieve the pressure that that fleet posed for the American fleet, which was at the time blockading Cuba. So it's a little convoluted, but ultimately the American land forces laid siege to Santiago. And while there weren't really many casualties, the siege itself was a pretty drawn out and pretty ugly affair. A lot of men died of disease and heat stroke. And so we took a lot of casualties there. The last major engagement was on July 4th, so a few days after Battle of San Juan Heights, where the Spanish fleet attempted to escape the blockade. So once we sort of surrounded Santiago with land forces, there was also a blockade of American cruisers outside the bay, which is a narrow inlet into the bay. And so the Spanish tried to escape. 
and the American ships that were ready to stop them did a pretty effective job of destroying pretty much every Spanish ship that came through the mouth of that bay. And there was one fatality, a couple of casualties from heat stroke, and then the Spanish just took enormous casualties. As I said, you know, most of the ships were either run aground or were destroyed. And at that point, it became kind of pointless for the Spanish to continue to hold Santiago, but Madrid refused to let up. And so the siege ended up lasting a couple of weeks. And was Teddy Roosevelt involved extensively in the fighting? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Teddy Roosevelt was there from the very beginning. He was at the front of the fighting at Las Guasimas and actually proved himself to be a pretty, you know, up until then, Roosevelt had never fought, had never really been a soldier. You know, he had never served before the Spanish-American War. And here he is as at the time, he was lieutenant colonel for the Rough Riders, so second in command. But he did a very effective job, and everyone said so afterward. And then at the Battle of San Juan Heights, you know, very famously led the charge up Kettle Hill. The Americans were, it was really a recipe for disaster. We should have lost, or the Americans should have lost the Battle of San Juan Heights. I don't know if you could say that it was Teddy Roosevelt that won the day, but he certainly was a key part of turning things around. The Americans were all pinned down in a creek bed or a riverbed. They had to go through this small river, and then they were pinned down on the other side of it. The hill rose up from there, and the Spanish were very well entrenched at the top of the hill. And so you had thousands of Americans who were taking casualties, both from Spanish fire, but also from the intense heat, well over 100 degrees. And so after a couple hours, Roosevelt realized that the only way to win, the only way to survive, was to rush the Spanish entrenchment. And so he gathered up a bunch of his men. And at that point, there were the Rough Riders, they were mixed with other regiments. And so he just led the charge first on his horse, and then he got off his horse and started running. Everyone else was dismounted. Sometimes you see paintings where they're all on horses. That's not accurate. No one else had a horse. And they just started running up this hill. And the Spanish, I think, were really caught by surprise. They didn't expect a full-on charge, which was suicidal. But because of the surprise element of it, there weren't too many casualties on the American side. Once they captured Kettle Hill, other regiments saw that happening, and they started rushing up San Juan Hill, just to the south. And eventually, they all converged, and Roosevelt then led his group over to San Juan Hill, and they won the day. So eventually, the U.S. takes Cuba. As for the other Spanish colony, Puerto Rico, was there an extensive campaign to take that, or did that land fall pretty quickly? Yeah, that fell pretty quickly. Once the Americans took control of Cuba, you know, by then it was sort of a almost a fait accompli that they had won the war, that Spain was going to back out or was going to surrender. And so the Americans just went over to Puerto Rico, landed on the western side, and just proceeded west to east, really without much opposition from the Spanish. You know, at that point, the Puerto Ricans were pretty happy to see the Americans. There was the assumption that the Americans would leave. And, and of course, they didn't. But they were moving through almost as victors at that point. And was the kind of campaign in the Philippines the final battle of the war? Well, it's funny. The naval battle in the Philippines, the Battle of Manila Bay, was the first engagement of the war. Uh, that happened well before anything happened in Cuba. And the idea was never to capture the Philippines. It was really just to neutralize the Spanish Pacific fleet so that it wouldn't sneak up and attack, say, San Francisco. But... In doing so, the American fleet, which had been based at Hong Kong, sailed to Manila, destroyed the Spanish fleet. It was not a surprise, but it was surprising how complete the victory was. And at that point, the Spanish essentially gave up. 
the Philippines. They surrendered the Philippines. And then it became a weird game of geopolitics. The Americans didn't expect to get the Philippines, but they couldn't leave the Philippines. And a lot of American leaders wanted to keep the Philippines. That's no question. A lot of them saw in it a lot of opportunities for basing, for resources, basically to turn it into a colony. But the real concern was that if America withdrew, then another country would take control. And Germany at the time was very eager to expand its holdings in the Pacific. Britain might take control of the Philippines. And, you know, wrapped up in all this is, of course, the racist assumption that the Filipinos couldn't possibly lead themselves. So it was never a question of do we let the Filipinos or do we leave and give Filipinos their independence? That was never on the table. And what it led to was, as you said, sort of the after story, which long after the fighting in Cuba was over, there was pretty terrible fighting in the Philippines. And the U.S.-Filipino War kind of became its own story long after the American engagement with Spain was over. And ultimately, the United States committed atrocities against the Filipinos very similar to what we had accused the Spanish of doing against the Cubans. And so concentration camps, mass executions, violence against civilians, all as a way of putting down what we considered an insurgency. And, and ultimately, the Americans did. And as everyone knows, we held it as a colony and well until the Japanese took it over in World War II. So eventually, you know, all these battles end. There's the Treaty of Paris. What did those peace terms dictate to ending the war? Well, they dictated that Spain would leave the Western Hemisphere. The United States paid Spain an indemnity for Cuba, so it wasn't simply a conquest. And one of the assumptions behind the treaty, and one of the preconditions for going to war, was that the United States would leave Cuba, and that there would be a Cuban independence would be fast coming. Eventually, it did happen, but it really happened more on paper than in substance. The United States remained very much the power behind the power in Cuba for years. I mean, really up until the Cuban communist revolution in the late 1950s, the United States really dictated both the politics of Cuba, but also a lot of the economy. And one thing that the Spanish-American War did was open the door to further exploitation of the Spanish economy and Spanish natural resources by American companies. But I would say that there was a certain amount of naive idealism on the part of some American politicians going into those negotiations, the peace treaty, and then also in their dealings with Cuba, there was a certain amount of idealism that said, well, we can give Cuba its independence and it will be a great neighbor. There were people who, from the very beginning, had imagined the American war, the American intervention in Cuba as being analogous to the French coming to help the American revolutionaries during the American Revolution, that we could do for Cuba what France had done for us. Now, ultimately, that's not really what happened in substance, but it wasn't an insignificant idea in the American public. And what effect did the Spanish-American War have on the perception of the United States, both domestically and internationally? Well, I mean, domestically, it certainly gave us, in the short term, a real sense of accomplishment, a sense of a great victory. I opened the book with a scene of this immense parade, both a naval and land parade in New York, where there was hundreds of ships going up the Hudson River one day, and then tens of thousands of soldiers marching down Broadway the next day. There was a victory arch later dismantled that was built in Madison Square Park. So there was a real celebration. And it really, at least in the short term, gave Americans a sense of purpose in the world. That was somewhat scaled back, I guess, or eroded with the experience in the Philippines. Because one of the things that the experience in the Philippines did was give a lot of energy to anti-imperialism. 
most famously Mark Twain, became the leader of the anti-imperialist, anti-Filipino war faction in America. And it had a very significant movement. So eventually these sort of evened out. And I would say that you know, the long-term effect was to give America a sense of place in the world, but also to sort of check some of its, what might otherwise have been continued imperialist, colonialist moves. Aside from the Roosevelt Corollary and his chicanery in Panama, I mean, it's not that things ended, but we didn't uh, go out and start trying to conquer the rest of the world either. But so how did it change perception of America and the rest of the world? Well, it certainly made them wake up and and see that the United States was, you know, if not a force to be reckoned with, at least definitely a country that was on the rise. Europeans had been wondering with regards to America and the war before it happened was whether the United States ever would or could assert itself against Spain. And once it did, I think that sort of created in the minds of the Europeans a new idea about what America was. Now, they took a much more realistic view much less idealistic view about America. They didn't really buy a lot of the lines coming out of the idealist, the sort of idealist jingoes saying, well, we're going to go out and shape the world in our image. The Europeans really saw it more as colonialism by other names. And so they saw what was going on in Cuba. They saw what was going on in the Philippines as just a different version of the kind of colonialism that they had practiced in Africa and Asia and, and certainly in the South Pacific. So ultimately, I think what's interesting is that both sides were right in the sense that idealism at home and sort of a foreign policy idealism in the United States really became the kind of underlying motivating factor behind American sort of public foreign policy views for generations. And you saw that behind the rush to war in World War I. You saw that as a strain of the support for American World War II. Up through Korea, Vietnam, the Iraq War, this has always been a refrain. And yet you see in the eyes of Europeans a much different and more realistic, sort of more jaundiced view of American activism in foreign policy. And did Teddy Roosevelt's role in the war elevate him to national prominence? Oh, certainly. I mean, one of the things that Roosevelt was very good at was cultivating reporters. And he had a number of reporters who followed him during the war on the trail. And they were filing very positive profiles of him, pictures of him as a leader. And it definitely did. So when he came back from the war, people were already talking about him as a candidate for governor of New York State. And that's exactly what happened. And even though he came back from the war, really not until September of 1898, within a couple of months, he was governor-elect of New York State. And from there, he used that as a springboard to cultivate a national image. And you know, a few years later, he was chosen as McKinley's vice presidential running mate for McKinley's reelection. Then, of course, McKinley was assassinated soon afterward and Roosevelt became president. But I think there's definitely a straight line from the image he won for himself in the Spanish-American War and his rise to prominence and then ultimately the presidency. And do you think the outcome of the war kind of contributed to these ideals of manifest destiny and American exceptionalism? Well, for sure. For sure, because the war played out exactly in the way that all of those ideas predicted. And so whether you call it manifest destiny after the kind of closing of the American frontier, you know, sort of go further, go abroad in search of that manifest destiny or completing it. But the melding of that with that idealism about American exceptionalism and the kind of role that America can play in the world that no one else can do. The idea that it was very popular at the time that we were taking the ideals of the American Revolution and the American Constitution and bringing them to the rest of the world. 
the main experience of the Spanish-American War was template, a melding of those two ideals, or those two ideas, those two urgencies, and using that as kind of a fuel for American foreign policy and expansionist foreign policy through the 20th century. Now, that expansionism is always going to look different from what Europe or Japan conducted during the 20th century, but the results are, I think, less distinct than some people would have liked at the time. It was colonialism by other names. And my final question is, overall, what do you think the legacy of the Spanish-American War is? Well, I think it's exactly that. It's the creation of an ideal around American foreign policy that became a very convenient tool for rallying public support behind an increasingly activist, expansionist American foreign policy through the 20th century, especially after World War II. I mean, between the Spanish-American War and World War II, you had really an ebbing and flowing of that sentiment. You had a lot of moments of extreme isolationism in the United States in the sort of among the public after World War I, 1920s, isolationism was sort of the name of the game, and even through the 1930s, but then that picked up afterward. And as America got involved in the Cold War, as it sort of expanded, used its victory in World War II, its economic might, its diplomatic might, its sort of soft power to really push itself out into the world, it was drawing on those ideals that were galvanized in the Spanish-American War, this idea that what's good for America is good for the rest of the world and vice versa, that America could do no wrong because we were always motivated by the right ideas. These things come out of that cauldron of the Spanish-American War. So I hope you enjoyed that interview. I know that, again, I love doing interviews just because it's a great way to get insight. And for me personally, I think throughout, I learn a lot, even though I read a ton about history and really enjoy the field. It's always great to interview people who have really, really immersed themselves in your particular topic. And I think it's a great lens into different events that might get overlooked or, you know, different events that haven't been researched a lot or there isn't a ton of talk in the mainstream about. And I think, again, like the Spanish-American War and one in particular that I think is overlooked. And I think especially with Teddy Roosevelt, I think most people know him as kind of the outdoors, conservation guy, the president, but maybe, and and people know his role in the Rough Riders, but don't really know it. And again, I think as uh, was mentioned, it propelled him to sort of a national stage and set him on the path to eventually becoming VP. And because of the assassination of President McKinley, eventually it led him to the president. And again, I mean, I would hope to kind of do a specific episode on Teddy Roosevelt his whole life, because again, he's just one of these larger than life characters in American history that is fascinating to study because I think, you know, one of the remarkable things is a couple of things. One is, you know, when he was president, he would just go off into national parks and drop off the radar. No one would know where he was. It's kind of hard to think about a president just being like, eh, you know, I need a break. I'm just going to go off into the woods or when he was shot, they're making a speech and then went on to make the speech. So, you know, and then joining the Rough Riders and going off the war. It's just, you know, he does all these things and not to say that he has any flaws. He certainly did, whether it was with race or different things like that. But I think, again, he's just one of these fascinating characters that I personally enjoy examining. And kind of get back to the Spanish-American War, again, I think in the wider context of what was going on in the world with colonialism, this clash between great powers, sort of, I mean, again, this is alternate history, but you almost have to wonder if the war didn't happen, if those sort of isolationist tendencies, you know, would have 
made the U.S. even more hesitant to join the First World War. Because again, at this time, 1898, the path towards war was well underway. Germany was rising. In some ways, you can kind of see similarities between Germany and the United States in the ways that their economies were growing exponentially, their populations were growing. And both of them were, again, trying to figure out their place in the world order. Obviously, Germany had to contend with a much difficult, a much more trickier geopolitical situation being kind of basically surrounded by enemies with Russia, France, and Great Britain, whereas the U.S. had the luxury of geography with the protection of two oceans, basically, that could protect itself from these sort of great powers. And again, it's kind of one of those things that I think is the Spanish-American War is that first step of trying, or not the first step, but another step in keeping out European powers that cause all these wars and problems. And despite those hesitations and reservations and idealism that was talked about, it sort of morphed into something other than that, which is unfortunate. But again, I think this is a fascinating period in American history. I hope you enjoyed the interview. I know I did and new episodes will keep coming. So I hope to keep doing these types of uh, interviews and examine these types of events. If you have reached this point in the podcast, you are at the end and thank you for listening all the way through. As always, follow us on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on social media at History Does You on Instagram or Facebook to keep up with new episodes, giveaways, and the chance to ask questions of your own to our guests. If you listen to us on Apple Podcasts and enjoy what we do, please give us a review and share it with your friends. Thanks again. 